This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to our 19th annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university. And it's our honor tonight to have Samuel Friedman with us, author, columnist, uh, unbelievable writer, in my view. Um, He writes about education and faith and culture and values for the New York Times, but also writes for Salon and for Rolling Stone and for The New Yorker and and any number of other uh, sites and publications. His books have been finalists for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. Uh, They include his most recent, Breaking the Line, but they also include The Inheritance, Jew versus Jew, Upon This Rock, who she was, small victories, and others. And, well, one that's most significant to uh, where I am from as a uh, faculty member in journalism is his book, Letters to a Young Journalist. Uh, I use that in uh, my reporting classes here at the university. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Samuel. Thanks, So many of your books just seem to be uh, symbols, the, the, symbolic in so many ways. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of Breaking the Line was such a highly symbolic book because it was about college football at traditionally black colleges, but it was also about the civil rights movement in the United States. Um, uh, your book, Small Victories, was, that was about a classroom for a year in Manhattan, but it was about the education system, and it was, and it was also about America. Uh, upon this rock, you took one church in Harlem, but it was about so much more than uh, one church. The inheritance, Jew versus Jew, you, they, they just seem to symbolize so much more than what you're writing about. So I'm, I'm just wondering, are you aware of this bigger story you're telling when you're telling these really specific stories? Well, I think for a book to work, especially a, a a work of narrative nonfiction or contemporary history, like most of mine, you have to operate on two levels. There has to be an intimate, personal level, a human story, something that really grips a reader and also that grips a writer. And at the same time, you want it to evoke something larger so that at the end of the day, you've produced something more than the so-called slice of life. So what I've tried to strike a balance on in these books is having individuals who are particular and wholly themselves. They're not, you know, just cartoon cutouts for a political cause or, you know, or a social issue or a trend in society, and yet in some fairly natural way can represent some larger current in the society. And that also ties in with one of my other goals for these books, which has been to write about the non-famous people and to write about how important change can be made by the people who you don't normally see getting accolades and awards and being elected to high office or being on, you know, on e-television. Um, you know, Breaking the Line is a good example. I'm writing about football at the black colleges in the late 1960s. And even football fans who might know some of these coaches, Eddie Robinson of Grambling, Jake Gaither of Florida A&M, or their great players like James Harris and Ken Riley, think of them as athletes, don't realize that in a very significant way, these people played a role 
in the civil rights movement and really leveraged their sport to help open up a more, you know, idealistic space in the society, you know, by desegregating it. Well, and, and I grew up during those, the, the civil rights movement, and, and yet when I was reading Breaking the Line, I just felt like I knew so much more of what was going on kind of behind the scenes as a result of, of reading your book, and you're just focusing on two football teams. Well, you know, you have to drill down into the, what one of my heroes in uh, narrative nonfiction, J. Anthony Lucas, once called the stubborn particularities of life. Which what, mean, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that you go with the individual lived experience and find the broader points there. Or to put it another way, the universal arises from the particular. So in trying to, for readers, especially younger readers, make the life of black people under segregation vivid and palpable, not only did I need to talk about some of the general representations of it, the inability to vote or to serve on a jury, the separate water fountains and bathrooms and so on. Because I was writing about athletes and coaches, I was really attuned to how did segregation, how did racism affect them? So it meant, you know, for James Harris growing up in Monroe, Louisiana, right across a small irrigation canal from the black neighborhood where he lived was a beautiful baseball field where American Legion and semi-pro teams played, and black people weren't allowed on that field. And sometimes at night after the game was over, he'd go with his friends to try to scavenge a broken bat that they could retape and use for their games. Or for Jake Gaither at Florida A&M, when he was a high school football coach, he heard there was a coaching clinic at Duke University, which of course was all white at that time. And he wanted to attend it, and he knew they would never let him come as a coach. So he wrote him a letter and said, can I be the janitor? Could I please come and sweep the floors and clean out the toilets, hoping that maybe he'd overhear some lessons or see some plays diagrammed on the chalkboard, and they wouldn't even let him come as the janitor. So it's getting into the marrow of those specific lives. So even if you know you feel that you know something in a broad way of what segregation was like, maybe you've never experienced it through a young athlete or a young coach. No, and 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 that's what I think is so beautiful about so many of your books. Um, I I didn't know what the experience of an urban American high school was like either, not at the gritty level until I read Small Victories, which, um, I mean, that's classic immersion journalism, right? You, you went to school at that high school every day for that school year, right? Virtually every day. This was sewer Did you try to blend in like that 21 uh, Jump Street I don't think thing? I'm going to blend in very well. Uh, you know... And, and uh, to be honest, and this gets to a broader point, you know, I've written several of my books either in the African-American community or Small Victories was in a high school that's primarily Latino and Asian-American. And one thing I've learned as the white guy who comes into these worlds is that the worst thing you can do is to try to pretend to be soul brother number one. You know, you can only be yourself and you get respected for owning your own identity. So I've never, as if it would even be possible, never tried to be anything but who I am. And with the high school, um, you know, I wore a coat and tie every day. I was... Really? You looked like this going to... Pretty much. Because I wanted the students to remember and know that I was there as a journalist. Yeah. And to mark off an important difference. And one of the things I respected about some of the teachers there is that they could be very committed to their students, transformational teachers. But part of what they also had to do was police the line that I'm not your friend. 
And I think sometimes gifted teachers, but less experienced teachers, don't know how to set that boundary. And it's an important boundary because otherwise young people get confused. But in terms of um, the lives of uh, the students there, what was so stirring is here's a high school in which the American dream is being reenacted. This was in 1987-88. And kids whose families had just come here from India or the Dominican Republic or, you know, the People's Republic of China or, you know, every country around the globe just about had some kid at Seward are trying in that classic way to use that high school to get to college to change their lives. And I was there almost every day. I probably was there about 80, 85 percent of the days. And the great thing is that the principal there, Noel Crifter, knew that his school, even though it was often pilloried in the New York media, said this is a failing school, it doesn't have a high enough graduation rate, blah, blah, blah. He knew it was actually a very successful school, and he said he would give me access to the school if I promised to come every day. He knew if I saw the school in its totality, I'd see what it was about, which I did. And I said to him, you know, I can't promise to be here 100% of the days, but I'll be here at least three quarters, and that was sufficient for him, and it was sufficient for me to be incredibly moved by what I saw. Sure, he, but he was smart enough to realize that if you just parachuted in, wrote what you saw, you know, left at the end of a week even, that you weren't going to get it. You can always cherry pick. And, you know, right. one of the things in a lot of the communities I've gone into is, is I found the frustration with the mainstream media because it would only come for bad news. Like Noel Crifter would talk about the fact that the newspapers, especially the tabloids in New York, would come to do a story about Seward Park High School. Who would they interview? They'd interview the kids who had actually dropped out or just the neighborhood drug dealers who would sort of hang out on the street and interview them about the school. The kids who went to school were inside the building. They never got interviewed. And when I went out uh, to East New York, a uh, neighborhood of Brooklyn, where um, the church I wrote about in Upon This Rock was located, the pastor, Reverend Dr. Johnny Ray Youngblood, said to me, why do we only see you when there's a murder? And he didn't mean me literally. He meant, why is the mainstream media only here when there's bad news? And I didn't have a good answer it's a to fair that question. question. And I was always struck when I would go out there at how much struggle and purpose there was. Sometimes I'd be out there for an early morning worship service on a weekday. And in the housing developments, you'd see all the lights on in so many apartments at 5.30 in the morning, people getting up and going to work. That was the story that wasn't told. Yeah, yeah. You know, back to Small Victories for a second. I was really struck by how you got the idea to do that book. Didn't the the teacher that you focused on, didn't she write you uh, a letter because of something you had written in the New York Times? Yeah, I'd written an article in the New York Times about a building in the, uh, in the South Bronx from which a young child fell to his death. And most of the coverage prior to my article had been, oh, this is a single-parent family, they're on welfare, these people don't take care of their kids, that narrative. And I went up there and found instead this was a building whose tenants had repeatedly complained to the city about the landlord, the absentee landlord living in the suburbs, not putting up the required window guards. The city had tagged this building for more than 100 violations. And still this landlord was able to own the building and do nothing. And that that was an important missing part of the story. And so Jessica Siegel, who's a journalism teacher at Seward Park, wrote me a letter 
and you know, said a nice story and mentioned she taught journalism. And I said, gee, thank you. And you know, if you're ever looking for a guest speaker, I like to do that kind of thing. And when I went down to Seward Park High School, really honestly kind of expecting it to be a messed up, chaotic place and walked into this spick and span school very orderly with all these beautiful photographs in the center hall of recent graduates and their diplomas and talked to her class. And these kids were sharp and incisive and challenging yet respectful. I thought there's a real story here, again, that is not being told. And I guess that's another thing that keeps drawing me is what's the untold story? So after you had been in there going to classes every day and going to teachers' meetings and stuff, when did it become clear to you what the story was? Some kind of a theme had to be kind of bubbling up at some point. Well, I think I knew. I had done a couple of months of research before the school year started. Oh, okay. And so I knew overall that the story was here's a school that by a lot of metrics, is supposed to be a failure because it has um, 30% of its kids graduate reading at grade level. No one mentions that only 10% of them come into the school reading at grade right. level. The school actually raised things a lot. Everyone talked about, oh, they have whatever it is, a 50 or 60% graduation rate. No one talks about the fact that of the kids who graduate, 90% went to college. So I knew that overall that was the story. Here's a place that looks like a failure that's actually succeeding in many ways that are sadly invisible. And I also knew that there was a more personal story about this very gifted teacher, Jessica Siegel, who was wrestling with the fact, with the question of whether she felt like she could stay in teaching any longer. But then, especially when you're doing immersion reporting like this, who would emerge as, among the students in particular, as a key character during the year? What stories would play themselves out? That was all a complete roll of the dice. You just have to sort of be there and wait for it to happen. You called uh, that teacher, Jessica Siegel, uh, the Saint Jude, the patron saint of lost causes. Well, I think that's a Catholic term. I just know how to steal well. <laughs> well yeah, it's a sign of any good writer, actually. But I know Reverend Youngblood used to say, ain't nothing wrong with being a copycat as long as you copy in the right cat. <laughs> that's good. That, I, I'm going to use that. Oh, yeah. I'm going to use that. <laughs> So, so you did something similar, though, for your book, Upon This Rock, where you went, to, you went to their worship services, you went to their board meetings. They let you have access to some pretty dicey stuff. Um, I, I'm just stunned by the access that all of these folks give you. What is it about you that, that makes people say, oh, yeah, I totally trust you? Well, I Do think you, in politics they call it walking around money. No, no, seriously. You pay, no, you didn't I, pay I think them. <laughs> I didn't pay him. No, no, I shouldn't even joke about it. Absolutely not. I've never done that. Um, I think, first of all, interestingly, both Jessica Siegel and Reverend Youngblood were cautious about me at the start, and I very much respected that. When I approached each of them and said, I'm interested in writing a book about you and your school or you and your church, it wasn't like, oh, great, I've always wanted someone to write a book about me. It was, I don't know. In fact, I remember Reverend Youngblood saying, I don't know what's going to come of this. And it was his ambivalent feelings about the mainstream media and its distortion of urban black life. And you're coming and from so, the New York Times. You're not exactly, you don't have a good reputation. Exactly, exactly. And so there was a feeling out process. And in, in the case of St. Paul Community Baptist Church, what Reverend Youngblood said to me and what we agreed upon is he would give me access to himself and the church for three months while I worked on the proposal for the book. And then we would see if it could move forward. And at the end of the three months, I wrote the proposal, which partly consists of a, of a sample chapter. And I gave it to him to read because I thought, if this is going to blow up in my face, 
Let's find out now and I can move on to something else. And he sat there reading it as I was sweating through my clothes. You and were sitting there? I was sitting there. And then, you know, he said he really liked it. You know, I could hear him laughing at parts. I could see him nodding at parts. And then I thought, oh, good, I'm over the hurdle. And then he said, I want to call in my folk and read it to them. And I thought, oh, no, now, you know, there's still a veto out there. But the response was really positive. And I think I got credit for getting things right. And um, that allowed the trust to gradually build. And Reverend Youngblood, very much like Noel Christopher, the principal at Seward, trusted the institution that he had helped to build. And he thought, just like Noel Christopher would invite me to suspension hearings, Reverend Youngblood would invite me into very intense meetings of involving church governance, in one case a good touch, bad touch situation involving a church usher I and, believe and a young they girl, let you in on that. because he, uh, he felt that I could hold it in context. I could see the church at its nitty-grittiest and contextualize that within everything it did. And also because he understood, one, another thing he used to say is church isn't a museum of saints, it's a hospital for sinners. So he felt like you had to see the struggle. You had to see the sometimes failure to appreciate the luminous success of it. Not everyone is made that way. I was really, really fortunate to have encountered him and Jessica Siegel and Noel Crifter and people who were willing to really be portrayed in a 360-degree way. Well, and, and both those books had some other similarities in, in that they both kind of looked like the, the school and then the church looked like these beacons of hope in areas that everybody had pretty well just written off. That's exactly right. I mean, they were beacons of hope. Um, Seward Park sent so many kids on to college, changed so many lives, and had a superb faculty. Sometimes when I went out on tour about that book, people would say to me, trying to get a zinger, would say, well, would you send your kids to Seward Park? And I'd say, look, I don't think anyone's kids should have to go to a high school that operates at 180% of capacity and is chronically underfunded. But that was the best high school faculty I'd ever seen in my life. So in that respect, who wouldn't want your kids taught by teachers like that? And so it was a beacon for that reason. And in the case of St. Paul Community Baptist Church, the neighborhood has improved immensely in the years since then. But in the late 1980s, early 1990s, when I was there, the height of the crack epidemic, the first terrible wave of the AIDS epidemic, this one neighborhood had more than 100 murders a year, just in one neighborhood. And you know the amount of violence and social chaos is hard to describe, and yet this church held so many things together, and particularly for the young people, was the one place that said to them, go to school, do well, we're going to read your report card aloud on Sunday from the pulpit to give you your props for being a great student, go to college, um, look at these men, some men who had been in prison, who were remaking their lives, just a, an amazing sense of modeling, an amazing sense of where theology becomes a lived life. Wow. You know, I, I, let me ask you something about your, your method, because so many of your books, I'm thinking of a scene in Breaking the Line where um, uh, the football player is alone in his room, or Reverend Youngblood in, in Upon This Rock is staring at himself in the mirror, or the, the teacher, Jessica Siegel, comes home to an empty apartment. You describe these as if you're there. And uh, 
but you're not there. Well, in the case how'd of, you do that? Well, in the case of the scenes with Reverend Youngblood doing his morning ritual of text study and so on, I was there. Really? I wanted to see him do it, so I went out to his house at five in the morning one day to just watch him do his routine of studying and centering down and kind of meditating. And then, you know, waking up his kids and, you know, making breakfast and, and going on to the rest he of He let you just watch all that? Well, this was after months of being around him. It wasn't yeah. the first thing I asked for. You <laughs> could seem kind yeah. of like a stalker. You don't start there, do you? Um, and in Jessica Siegel's case, it was that she was, I know the scene you're talking about, she got autobiographies written by her students, some of which were incredibly harrowing to read. And she was sitting there both grading them and line editing them and also kind of emotionally reacting. And I just sat there at the other end of her living room watching her work. Hmm. Now, with Upon This Rock, I mean, with uh, Breaking the Line, this is a work of history, so I didn't observe anything. So it was a feat of reporting to try to meticulously reconstruct what these scenes were about. So to describe, say, James Harris as a high school student sitting down with his family to watch the March on Washington, to watch what we now know as the I Have a Dream speech, but no one knew what it was then because that hadn't been delivered yet. That requires a lot of interviewing multiple participants and getting whatever other documentary materials are available and trying to synthesize all that into a scene that you feel as a narrative writer you can stand on, that you can say to a reader, this is credible. I didn't attend it. I wasn't there with him in 19, on August 28, 1963, but I'll stake my reputation on the accuracy of this reconstruction. You know, the reason I'm asking this is because you're so adamant in your Letters to a Young Journalist book about you do not recreate stuff you know, that may or may not have happened. Um, your commitment to fact is everything. So I knew you must have known something for you to write something like that because of these other things you've gone on the record of saying you, you can't make this stuff up. You can't. I think... Um, with writing history, if we had, you know, as journalists, we often feel most comfortable with what we can observe or what happened just before we got there. But if you're going to write history, that's impossible. You're not talking about what you've observed. It's happened in the past. And sometimes you have a great deal of primary source documentation to rely upon. Sometimes it's spottier. Um, you often augment it with the journalistic kind of post facto interviewing. But if you couldn't come up with a way of credibly recreating, reconstructing those realities, you couldn't write history at all. Yeah, okay. Okay, so you were confident in what you were writing that, that this is, if it isn't exactly how it happened. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't put it on the page if I didn't feel like I could defend it. I think you always have to have a part of you that's thinking in the mind of one of your readers, how does he really know that? How can I be sure this is true? If I asked him, what would he tell me about where this scene came from? And um, so you're not doing guesswork or surmise. You're really trying to concretize everything that you've put on that page. Yeah, yeah. You know, in, in the book, The Inheritance, there were so many times where I thought, uh, it, and this is about immigrant families, and they achieve with different generations, they achieve middle class, uh, st status, they start out being very supportive of almost socialist-type causes, very much behind uh, FDR's New Deal, um, very much behind government programs, government spending. Their kids grow up, become middle class, and they, and they become conservatives. And, uh, and I just thought so many of the issues that you wrote about in that book 
are, are so many of the issues that we're still arguing about, which have to do with government spending and immigration and, um, and, and, and some of the stuff that they were just almost mirror images of today. I mean, did you know that when you were I, I didn't know, but the interesting thing is how much the political center of the country has moved to the right in certain ways, or at least of, of the Republican Party has moved to the right since I wrote the book, The People... I wrote about the youngest generation. It was three families over three generations. So the young generation, which would be people who are now probably 63 to 65 years old, they were part of the Reagan revolution. Um, One of them was very involved with the 94 races when George Pataki became governor of New York, when Newt Gingrich led the Republicans to capture Congress, the contract with America. But by today's standards, the people I wrote about would now be considered probably too moderate to be nationally acceptable Republican candidates or consultants. That's what's really startling. Um, And someone who they were very devoted to, like George Pataki, would be considered not quite reliable by conservatives now because he's a strong environmental record, for instance. So it's true the issues are still out there, but what's fascinating is, you know, how much the landscape around these young conservatives I wrote about has changed to the point where they wouldn't even be perceived these days, I think, as being sufficiently conservative by a lot of people. That's really interesting. Because I was reading The Inheritance at a a different level. I was was reading it from a perspective of, if you were to write that book now, immigrants coming from Central America, for instance, what would be similar and and what would be different? Well, that would be fascinating. I mean, I think coming from Central America... The potential for immigrants, and this was starting to happen under Ronald Reagan, and it was starting to happen under George W. Bush, is that because of a strain of social conservatism and a love of entrepreneurialism, many of those immigrants might have followed that trajectory to start out more liberal, more oriented around lunch bucket issues, more you know, in need of government social service programs, and would have perhaps moved on particularly issues of kind of uh, social issues, abortion, um, gay rights, issues like that, but also the feeling of one could be entrepreneurs and one less government um, intrusion, as they saw it. They might have headed towards a Republican column. You could see that under Reagan, and you could see it under George W. Bush. He got like 45% of the Hispanic vote in this country, and that's all now been very derailed because talking about what happened has happened um, in the Republican Party, at least sure. one faction of it since then, there's been such a push back against immigration. It's become such a hot-button issue that you see actually even Cuban-Americans who, because of feeling persecuted by Castro's communism, were very much conservative politically in this country, very aligned with the Republican Party. You see even some of them beginning to depart it. So that similar process that very well might have occurred, and also for Asian-American immigrants, has been kind of derailed. Um, and that's something, obviously, there's a lot of conversation about in the political media right now. Yeah, th- th- there were just some interesting real parallels uh, as, as I was uh, reading through what was happening in the 1920s and, and, and 30s and thinking about that now. I think the other difference is that these immigrants came in, it was very, they came here, they were legal when they arrived here, they became citizens, and there were political machines that existed in part 
to acculturate them to being voting, to being right. you know, part of the political process. So they had a very quick entry into the political life of the country. And I think for a variety of reasons, being undocumented, the you know, diminished presence of political machines, which for all the bad things they did, were very good at acculturating immigrants, that you don't have as rapid a movement from the time the immigrant gets here to becoming a citizen, to then becoming a registered voter, to then actually becoming an active voter. Yeah, yeah, okay. You know, I, I, I want to talk about uh, your book, Who She Was, a, a, a book about your mother because you, did, you felt like you didn't know her very well. You know, I, she died when you were a teenager or right, when you were 19. in college. Yeah, and, and so you go back. There just seemed to be this, this overarching theme of regret throughout that book. Is that, is that accurate? Yes, or, yes. I mean, not, not only the, where, why the book began it, out of a sense of regret, but, but through it all. So was, was that just a really painful book to write? Well, it was cathartic. I think it sort of ended a period of pain. I had always felt tremendous guilt about the fact that when my mother died and I was 19 and sort of in the throes of doing the normal 19-year-old thing, which is to reject her, that it sort of froze us in place at that time. And it made me feel like she had died with me rejecting her. And it, huh. over many years, it made it impossible for me to bring myself to go to her grave because I think I felt so guilt-ridden about it. And I didn't know what to do over the years with all of that emotion. You know, there's a great um, concept in Judaism about you call doing tshuva. Tshuva is a word for repentance. So this was my, my book of tshuva. It was an act of repentance to go back and find her life. So part of it was just to know her because, again, when you're 19 or a teenager, the last thing you care about with a parent is who they were before you came into their lives. All you there were no about, one. Can I right? borrow the car? How come you didn't make me my lunch today? How exactly. How come isn't my favorite thing, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was to discover this terra incognita of her life long before I was born, her formative years, age 13 when she starts high school, up to age 27, 28 when she marries my father, which is her second marriage. But the other part is I felt that in recovering her, I was fulfilling a long-neglected obligation to know her and to love her in a certain way. And so the catharsis of writing that book was the end of a certain kind of regret. I felt that I could finally lay down my regret at the end and be reconciled to her. It, it was just such an interesting experience to read this because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking you're... It's, in this book, it's dawning on you, which means it's dawning on me, the reader, that you're, you're discovering that she was somebody before you were in this world. Yes. And, and she, you know, who she dated and this conflict of, of marrying outside of her faith. And I, I don't know, did it feel just a little weird writing about her as a flirtatious uh, young lady? <coughs> a lot of people ask me that. <laughs> you know, part... I felt that it was essential, you know, being a journalist as well as a son, I could kind of cut my brain in half writing this book, um, that the journalist part was able to ask any question and hear any answer. And the son part then would ruminate over that. And I didn't find it creepy at all to... I didn't say it was creepy. No, no. I did not... 
Although but, uh, it kind of was. A lot of, people, but, a lot of yeah. people who've read the book have asked it along those lines. Okay. Maybe used the word creepy. You know, it was an interesting experience to go back and find her ex-boyfriends and ask what it was like dating her and ask about even how they dealt with the sexual code of the time and what a man was allowed to do with a bad girl versus what he felt he couldn't do with a good girl like my mother and my mother straining against what the sexual code told her a good girl couldn't do. And I would actually say to people in so many words, like I just said it to you, I can hear anything you can say. You can tell me anything. I can hear it all. And I think people have to feel that they have that permission from you. And then they were forthcoming with it. And the reason it was so important for me to explore that part of her life as well as her intellectual life and her life as a cultured person is that she died at age 50. And from the time she was diagnosed with cancer at age 45, her life force was under assault and it was diminished and diminished and ultimately extinguished. And a big part of her life force was her sense of being physically attractive, was her sense of being alluring to men. And it harrowed her to lose that capacity as she was dying, to lose it to her cancer, to have to get a partial mastectomy, to watch her face swell from cortisone. That was one of the hardest blows she had. And so I felt if I omitted that part from her life, I was not conveying the full person. And that in writing about the dating part of her life and the sexual part of her life, and I don't mean to sound salacious, but just no, it wasn't the role for appetites yeah. and her desires and her wanting to be with the men she loved, that that was reclaiming her life force. That was part of my goal, which was to reincarnate her. You know, there's, there's this scene in that book that I, I just thought, oh, I can so see myself asking this question as you did of, of your mom and then regretting it. And you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You want to? Well, it was the last couple of months she was alive, and we had gone up to visit my brother, who was a counselor at a camp up in uh, New England. And my mother at this point needed really strong painkillers because she had, one of the things the cancer had done was get into her bones. And earlier that summer, she had fallen off a step stool um, and cracked the vestigial tailbone, and it just didn't, wouldn't heal. The bone was too diseased to heal, so she had constant pain from that. And all they could do was palliative stuff, was give her pain killers. And when we went, she and my dad and I, up to visit my brother at camp, she had mistakenly left behind her prescription, left behind her pills at home. And we didn't realize this till we were six hours away in New Hampshire. And young people, this is not the era of the internet and cell phones and smartphones and email. So you had to go then to a pharmacy at night where they've never dealt with you and basically beg for them to write your prescription for a controlled substance. And my father went in to do that. And meanwhile, my mother was in the car just whimpering with pain. And she was someone at a very, very, very high pain threshold. So I'd never seen her at any point in her disease crying. And I said to her, you know, when it's like this, do you, you know, ever wish you weren't alive? Or, you know, and she gave me the most valiant answer. And she said, you know, she said, not as long as there's one more great book to read, not as long as there's one more great play to see. And that was still reasserting itself for amazing life force. Yeah. You know, you said one other thing about her that I just thought 
made her out to be almost this tragic figure that, that she knew that her life had peaked at age 17. Yeah. You know, a friend of mine, a fellow writer of mine, Michael Shapiro, always says that every book has to set out to answer a question. And maybe this book had two questions. One is the one in the title, or implied by the title, who was she? Yeah. How, you know, who was she before she became my mother? But the other, which came out of what I did remember of her, is what made her die unfulfilled? Because her lack of fulfillment was so apparent to me, even though she was a wonderful, loving mother to me, her sense of never having achieved what she wanted to, of knowing that the curtain was ringing down on her life with the sense of tremendous un- irresolution and unfulfillment, that question nagged me. So I wondered, why did she feel that way? And as I explored her life, I found that for a whole multitude of reasons, it was because her life had peaked when she was 17, when she was beautiful and the valedictorian of her high school and heading to college. And all these other things denied her the fulfillment of that, her father's inability to be a good provider, which compelled her to become the breadwinner for the family, her decision to get into a very toxic relationship with her mother and all the energy she wasted on the anger in that relationship, you know, a variety of things, what the, what the Holocaust did to the life of her family, losing all their relatives um, in Europe as a result of it. So all these forces left her, I felt, constantly looking back to this magic moment when everything seemed possible. You know, it, it, and then I think about an essay that you wrote for, I think it was The Tablet, about your father. Yeah. I've, we've gone over this essay in all of my writing classes. Oh, thank you. I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've read, where in, I, didn't, I didn't hear the same regret in that. There, I mean, there was, there was a sense of you didn't live maybe up to, there's that outstretched hand that's still in that essay. Um, but that was a completely different writing experience for you. Right, and it was a completely different life experience. My father lived to 89 and was vigorous, you know, really up to his very last days. And whereas my mother was a valedictorian who never found the right occupation for herself, who never got to be the thing she most wanted to be, which was a journalist, um, who got a master's degree in education and never had quite the right fit to make a career out of it, and then who had it all cut short by disease on top of it. My father was, as he always liked to joke, was the dumb kid in his family. He was the one who his parents had him go to work to pay for his brother and sister's college tuition. And he then became the super achiever by surprise and became like a self-taught engineer, inventor, never having gone to college, ended up with like 200 patents for machinery and built a machine shop up into a biotech company. So his trajectory was entirely yeah. different. Um, and it made for action interesting chemistry, my parents, between them, because in spite of many things that bound them together, I think there was a degree my mother envied and even resented my dad because he had come from no expectations to being a kind of a star. And she had been the star who hadn't fulfilled particularly her own expectations. Yeah. You know, and, and, and we haven't talked yet about uh, your book, Jew versus Jew, but th- there was so much in that that, I mean, so many of your books deal with identity, you know, a person's identity. It just seems like you're drawn to that. 
And one of the things that, that just leaped out at me about the book Jew versus Jew is that there are, there are these people who say to certain uh, Jewish people in America, you're not Jewish enough. Right. And other people who say you're too Jewish, we <laughs> want you out of the neighborhood. Right. You know? and, and so I got to thinking, we probably do the same thing about Muslims. We probably do the same thing about Christians. You know, you're not Christian enough. You're, not, you're, you're too Christian right. or whatever. So I kept seeing these other labels come in there, and uh, and so that just had to be a, a, a really interesting experience. Well, to write it was that. it was a fascinating one for me, and I think you're right that this appears in other faith streams as well. Because really, one of the things that I find so endlessly absorbing about writing about religion is that once you're at least no longer young, so young, your parents can order you to go to church or synagogue or mosque or ashram. You're a free agent, and so religious communities, unless they're cults, you know, are, are voluntary communities. And within voluntary communities, there are these battles over definition, over what's correct practice, over what's fidelity to the faith or to the tribe versus what's being too Americanized or too cosmopolitan. And I think that you're probably right that these struggles are being hashed out. You know, you talked about... In, in the Jewish community, it's either, you know, you're too Jewish or you're not Jewish enough. There's a great Jewish idiom um, called a tzitzis check. It comes from the fringes that if you're an Orthodox Jew, Jewish male, you wear to call tzitzit, and you wear them under your clothing as part of a larger garment to remind you of the 613 commandments. And the slang term, a tzitzis check, means I'm checking on you to see, like, are you really following all the laws or are you backsliding? And... When I hear Catholics talk in disparaging ways about, oh, so-and-so is just a cafeteria Catholic, that's a similar kind of, um, you know, of way of framing it, similar sure. idea. And when I was writing my book about um, St. Paul Community Baptist Church, people who'd been in church for a while would kind of roll their eyes at the fervor of someone who'd just come down the aisle at the altar call. So, like, you know, the... The, the passion of the new convert who's almost literally holier than now and everyone else who's been in the congregation is like, give them a few months and I'll calm down. So <laughs> I think these forces are active in other kinds of voluntary religious communities. I think maybe it's a little bit more intensified, though, in the Jewish world because it's a religion, but it's also kind of a nationality and an ethnicity, and a sense of peoplehood, which is part of why it's so fought over, because there's this whole ongoing argument of, do you even need to attempt to practice Judaism in order to be a good Jew? Um, Is it enough to have a certain kind of politics to be a good Jew? But if that's the case, what's Jewish about being you know, a liberal Democrat? That's not a religious identity, it's a political identity. And so all this stuff is kind of raveled together for American Jews in a way that maybe doesn't quite the same for some other, some other faith streams, although maybe Muslims would be the closest because you have this idea of the Ummah, the worldwide Muslim community that transcends nationality. So an American Muslim might be Sunni or Shia or Ahmadiyya, but also would have a nationality, would be Pakistani or Indonesian, or Lebanese, or what have you, and it also would feel part of the Ummah, and you have all those different stresses and strains, and also is trying to be Americanized and to be an American Muslim on top of it. 
which is one of the things you've, you've written so well about. I mean, the, the, the football team in Dearborn that is in the middle of, a, of, a, of Ramadan, a fast, right, right? And, and can't eat until halftime because uh, this is part of their religious practice. And, and, and I, I just think you've written so respectfully about, um, about faith, religion, values uh, in, in general that um, I, I just think it's interesting that, that you do this, but your father was an atheist. I know. Well, it just shows there's more than one way to rebel. What? <laughs> I, um, my family were, were atheist fundamentalists. It's not like they were just So they were atheists. aggressive atheists. They were aggressive. I always used to say, much as I love you know, my parents um, and, and miss them, the noun religion was never uttered in our home without being preceded by the adjectives sectarian and materialistic. So it was a very actively anti-religious house. For my mother, this was a reaction against her family's refusal to let her marry an Italian Catholic young man she dearly loved. In my father's case, he had grown up in an anarchist community in which being fervently atheist was very much part of that identity. So one thing they really bonded on together was their antipathy toward religion. And And um, yet you, every other week... Well, I know. Well, I felt this kind of yearning this ineffable, inchoate attraction to it from the time I was young. And um, I couldn't explain it. It never went away. And I found a way ultimately to act upon it. I think actually one of the subtextual reasons I probably wrote Upon This Rock was because I wanted to explore what it would mean to be in a faith community. But I felt too ashamed to do it in a Jewish context because I I knew nothing. I felt like I'd be found so lacking, so you know, deficient as a Jew, whereas if I went into a black Christian setting, no one expected it of me. In well, fact, I think my favorite line in that book is the pastor introducing you to the congregation uh, and saying, Sam's tabula has a lot of rasa. There's a whole lot of rasa. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't in the book, but I'd actually, I wrote about it in a later essay. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. I, that's just hilarious. I mean, he's just saying to the congregation, you know nothing. Well, the interesting thing is, you know, to be in a black Christian community like that where faith is so central, people would ask me, what was it like to be, you know, a Jew doing that book? And I said, well, that really wasn't the dividing line. I said, if I'd come in there as a Hasidic guy with a black coat and a black hat and a long beard and the forelocks that are called payas, but had an active religious practice, that wouldn't have been nearly as odd to them as being a secular humanist Jew who had no religious practice and no religious knowledge. That was what was confounding. They would, it was really humiliating to me because they would ask me very basic questions about Judaism that I couldn't answer. And I, I also learned a, a good lot about the uh, social justice prophets and the Exodus narrative from being in that church. So it was sort of Judaism 101 taught by black Christians. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let, let, let's talk about journalism for, for, for the, the last few minutes that we have. Um, you, you seem so hopeful about, about journalism. And, and I, I see very few people my age or older who have anything good to say, they, they talk about the good old days or they talk about, you know, uh, when, when the news media were, were objective. And, you know, I, I don't remember those days. Yeah. I, I, I don't think those days ever existed. And, and so you, when you talk about journalism, 
you don't just long for, for some fantasy that, that never actually existed. You're actually very hopeful about the future of journalism. Well, first of all, if you're teaching young people, if you have nothing to give them but cynicism and you know, cheap nostalgia about the old days, you should get another racket. You shouldn't be teaching. And you know, as far as the good old days, yeah, it reminds me there's a term that comes out of addiction studies called ecstatic memory. And as uh, the uh, theater artist Eric Bogosian once said, he was playing a character of someone in recovery. And he said, yes, when you're doing drugs, you're having such a good time, you forget what a bad time you're having. And <laughs> journalistically, what I mean is people look back as if it was perfect in whenever they started. So for me, that was the mid-70s. But I'm sure when I was there in the mid-70s, in fact, I know this, people who started in the 50s were saying, oh, it's terrible. Can you believe the New York Times just started a food section? Journalism is over. Oh, can you believe people are watching the news on TV instead of reading an afternoon paper? It's the end of an intelligent public. So first of all, it's always been a, a profession in change. It was never fixed. And second of all, this golden age, it had some things to recommend it. There was mass journalistic culture in the form of publications like Time and Life and the New York Times and you know the three evening newscasts when there were only young people, three networks. Back what's, when, what's a network? Back when dinosaurs walked the earth, I was among <laughs> yeah, them. Yeah. Um, so I would dodge the triceratops and go home to watch Walter Cronkite. Um, and, but there was a lot that was lacking then. The newsrooms I started in didn't even realize how narrow they were. They were almost entirely male. If women were in the newsrooms, they were generally restricted to writing about fashion or food or weddings. Um, there were, there would maybe be one token black in a typical newsroom like that. On the East Coast, I never heard anyone even use the word Hispanic or Latino. I don't think they even understood the concept. Um, anyone who was gay or lesbian was deeply closeted. And of course, we thought we were very enlightened and you know, serving the public good, and we were trying our best. But at the same time, we didn't grasp what a narrow slice of America we represented. You were in your own echo chamber. We were in our own echo chamber. And so I think a lot with the increasing diversity of newsrooms since then is a huge improvement. And the other thing I say, the reason I'm optimistic, is that people haven't stopped wanting reliable information. All of us get drawn to infotainment. Look. Well, I, you know, I can go on, I used to go on the elliptical, you know, in the building where my uh, wife was then living, we hadn't married yet, and they had whatever channel the Kardashians are on was part of their cable system. I did the, a lot of The time. Kardashian channel. I did, a lot of, <laughs> I did a lot of time on the elliptical watching the Kardashians. Um, so, you know, I'm not immune to these things, to the cheap pleasures, but I used to think that when time delivers um, an important news event, when there's a bombing, at the Boston um, Marathon, when there's, you know, nonviolent protesters shot in the Ukraine, when there's Tiananmen Square, you name it, people still go for reliable, reported, edited news. That hasn't gone away, and neither has the human need to be told stories and the human desire to have a well-told story, a nonfiction in addition to fiction. You know, NPR is a great term for that. They call it driveway moments, that thing you're hearing on the radio as you drive in and you can't bear to turn it off, so you sit in the driveway um, listening to the end of it. And that hasn't gone away. The only thing that's missing is a different economic model for the industry. 
And that's going to be solved. I totally believe it will be solved. It hasn't been solved yet, but it will be solved. And once it's solved, things are going to solidify. And so that's why I'm optimistic. The other thing is that the reason people go into journalism and always have is because they love it. They feel that they can do nothing else. And I can't think of anything worse for a young person than to step away from what they feel their calling is. If you have almost in that Catholic sense the word a vocation for journalism, what would fill you with more regret than to give it up too soon? As I always say, you can go to law school later. Well, you've, you've even called journalism doing God's business. God's work. God's work. All right. All right. So what does that mean? Oh, I, I agree with you, by the way, but I don't know what it means. Well, well, I just mean this is how important I think it is. I say we're doing the Lord's work. I say that to my book class all the time. What I mean is just like someone in ministry, when they say we're doing the Lord's work, they're saying that they feel like this is about something bigger than themselves, that there's a tremendous sense of almost divine accountability to what they do, and that this has got to matter, and that it represents our best human efforts to do good in the material world. And I really feel that journalism, in a secular way, should be answerable to that, that we're not just entertaining, we're not just diverting, we're trying to do something, if we do well, that's profound, and we ought to feel that way about it. You know, it's interesting, I talked about my mom and dad and their atheism, but one thing that speaks to this, when I became curious about religious practice and said to them I wanted to study to become a bar mitzvah, my father said, he didn't object to it. He said, you can do it, but you have to be serious about it. And there was a class we would have with the rabbi every Sunday morning for all the bar mitzvah candidates. And sometimes it conflicted with my Pop Warner football game. And I love playing Pop Warner football. And my father said, you have to go to Hebrew school. You have to miss your football game. If you're going to do this, take it seriously. Well, he had that much respect. He had that much respect. Interesting. All right. We, we have... Um a good number of uh, uh, writers, wannabe writers, young journalists, people who will be watching this uh, on television who want, to, who want to be like you. They want to write columns and they want to write books and, and uh, have, a, have a career writing. Um, what advice would you give them? Uh, a couple of pieces of advice I'd give them are read great writing, not just journalism, certainly the best journalism in places like The New Yorker, but also the best fiction you can get your hands on. And go to art museums and watch plays and watch good movies. Um, Why if, fiction? Because I think fiction gets to truths of human nature that it sometimes gets to them better than nonfiction does. And also because the writing can be freer than in nonfiction because it's fiction, and I think it's just helpful for us to be exposed to that. It, it, to me, it's oxygen in my brain. But just anything you read, be a student of that. Don't just read it to be entertained or even to be edified or educated. Read it the way a med student, the first-class med students, have his anatomy. They give a group of med students a cadaver, and that's what they look at to figure out how the human body works. They spend a year with it. Everything we read as journalists or aspiring authors should be our anatomy class. How does this book work? What works and why does it work? What didn't I like and why didn't I like it? So bring that sensibility. Then secondly, um, I would say understand that reporting is what enables writing. 
that there's no such thing as writing divisible from reporting, that writing is the end outcome of a process that's built on the altar of reporting. And that the last thing I would say is that this is your job and do your job, that none of us are good enough to have the affectation of saying, I don't feel inspired today. All of us need to get up and go to work every day. And that's how you get better. Um, you know, to me, it's almost like, why do you train in a sport? You can't turn it on and turn it off at will. If you aren't doing your reps every day, if you aren't running your miles, it's not there. I have a, a friend of mine from high school who's auditing the book writing class I teach at Columbia this semester. She's a world-class flautist. I mean, she travels the world. She performed a couple of months ago at the Hollywood Bowl with Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter. And I said to her, how many hours a day do you practice? Just things like scales. She said to my class, two to three hours. And that's what means that when she's up there with Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter, she's in possession of all of her skills. And it's the same way with writers. Samuel Friedman, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.